Let's go to the Word of God this morning, shall we? Turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. As we're teaching and studying our way through this monumental book, a book that teaches more about Jesus Christ as the great high priest than any other book of the Bible, and certainly grounds us in his person as that high priest. Let's go to the text of chapter 6 this morning. Let me begin reading in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we do indeed turn our hearts in prayer to you. Lord, we would bow internally in our spirit before you, for your sovereignty is great. Your glory is above all measure. Your goodness is a guide, and we, Lord, need your help. As each time we open your word that you have written and given to us, Lord, we pray the power of the Holy Spirit that you have guaranteed to us that it would be our guide. And the words and the way you wrote them, and the way you delivered them, and to whom you delivered them, we would honor. Bless us in this study that we might have greater assurance that our anchor would indeed hold fast in the hope of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been looking into going on to maturity and having a mature understanding of who Jesus is, we also have paralleled that with the ability to understand if we are in the grace of God, i.e., are you saved or are you not saved? In chapter 6, we have that monumental and somewhat difficult passage for many to realize that there are some who have walked very close with the church of God and yet have never truly trusted, have never truly believed the promises of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. Thereby, they have fallen away and in a permanent fashion, impossible for them to be restored again to repentance in verse 6. So these were not the saved, but the unsaved who have great understanding, but yet have turned away and now have become the enemies of God. And so over the last number of weeks, you might say I have been hammering, and I, and I hope hammering home, how one can know if they are indeed among the group of the saved, of those who are and have in their life those things which verse 9 tells us, but beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you, better things than those who have fallen away who never believe. Yes, he says, things that accompany salvation, though we speak to you in this manner. For too often, if Christians stay in an immature, in a baby-like status, as the writer of Hebrews had admonished them in chapter 5, he said, by now you should be teachers. But you have need to be taught again the first principles of Christ. And being in a baby state, babies tend to be blown, as Paul says in Ephesians, by every wind of doctrine. And the security of salvation is one of the areas where a Christian can be blown about. 
For there are many who would like to undermine the stability of a Christian in their standing on the promises of God and on the purposes and the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've been doing this in great detail, and now we find ourselves in the final verse of chapter 6. But let me remind you again that we have looked at these mature accountings of Christian salvation. So we take an account, we, we measure the things that actually exist, not the things in our bank accounts we want to exist, but the things that are exactly there. So when we take an accounting of our Christian life, we can't say, well, I want to pray all the time, but I don't. Then a good accountant will say, well, then how many times did you actually pray? And so a good accounting would be, okay, twice this week, that's, that's the reality, rather than all the time. So we take an accounting of how we really live our lives, and that gives us a confidence in what has happened to us in our lives. The outward sign that you have been inwardly born again were those things that accompany a mature evaluation or assurance in our salvation. And it began with verses 9 through 12, the unflagging diligences in these things, those works of salvation. So God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown to his name. There's two of them there. Your work and your love would be evidences that you are saved. And then the direction of that work and love toward the saints. And then you continue to minister. You didn't just start ministering and then stopped, but you continue to minister. And this becomes a level of assuring works for you that God has indeed changed your heart. And God will not forget. In verse 11, we saw the fourth of these, a diligence. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the fertile assurance of hope to the end. True Christians keep hoping they keep their assurance for the long haul all the way to the end, unlike those who have fallen away. And in verse 12, we saw the fifth of those unflagging works of diligence. That you do not become sluggish, he urged them on, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. Again and again, God in his word encourages the Christian to endure, to keep on keeping on following him and hoping in his promises. That is a sign that you are saved. The second, we looked at the list of unchangeable confidences in the promises of God, and it's based on even what God told Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, verse 13, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply. And then here is the life of the believer that follows the life of Abraham in verse 15. And so after he had patiently, what? Endured, he obtained the promise. Christians, we are always standing on the promises of God. What God said he will do, he will do. What God said he would do in the past, he has brought about. And we then know we are part of that group, the group of those who are of faith, when like Abraham, even though he was never in ownership of the promised land, he still believed the promise of God that his people would be in the land. And he's still believing that today when he's with God. And I believe it today and you believe it today, and the promises that then relate to us according to Jesus Christ. And so then we have moved on to an immovable reliance that we need to have, not just on God or on the things we are doing, but this hope that is in and becomes an anchor for the soul. An unmovable reliance, just like an anchor that is thrown over the side of a ship or a boat to hold secure and in place on the mobile, movable, ever-shifting, ever-moving bodies of water. We want our Christian lives to be anchored in a mature fashion, not anchored to Christian platitudes, but anchored to the truth of God's Word. And so last week we learned that first our unmovable reliance in our great high priest must be on the, a reliance on the high priestly order of Jesus. Now listen to verse 19 again. This hope we have as an anchor 
of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So two qualities, these two hooks on our anchor, one is sure and one is steadfast. If one doesn't catch, the other one will. And so when we throw it over, we are constantly being reassured of our hope in Jesus Christ that we can count on his anchor to hold us in a sure and in a steadfast way. And then we rely on the access of our great high priest. Notice again in verse 19. It says this hope that is sure and steadfast. But listen, here is what we're hoping in. This hope in this high priest, which enters the presence behind the veil. Ever since God wrote the word, Old Testament or New Testament, he has been preparing Israel to receive even this book, the book of Hebrews. He's been preparing all who are even proselyte Jews, all who are believers in the one true God down through the ages to be prepared for a ministry of a coming high priest that was symbolized in Israel in the temple ministry of the sons and lineage of those of Aaron, the first great high priest, the first high priest of Israel. So all of those ministrations of those priests, which brought people to God, are then come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who ultimately brings people to God, and makes the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. There was only one reason to enter behind the veil in the temple in Israel. That was on the Day of Atonement. The day in which the blood must be applied to God's very throne on the mercy seat of God between the two golden cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil. The veil of God that historians tell us was woven so thickly that it was probably about four inches thick. And it was done so for the protection of people. Protection from the blazing, blinding, and death-causing glory of God who said he appears above the cherubim. Men cannot see the glory of God and live. Even Moses, when he asked for a view of God, what did God do? God took him and he hid him in a cleft of the rock and he passed by. And then you got to see the afterglory. Moses got to peek out and see the afterglory of God. Not the full glory of God, the afterglory of God. And even when he was in the presence of the glory of God, his face was even shining. And the people were afraid of him, even being one who was reflecting or carrying some of the glory of God when he came down to see them. Man cannot stand before a holy, glorious God and live in this flesh. And so that was a protection, but it was also an indication of the holiness and the sanctity of that area where God is. And once a day on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest only could enter in there and make atonement for himself. As we studied last week, make atonement for the temple itself because the temple had been defiled from the sin of the people. Make atonement for the people with the goat and then the scapegoat who would later be released. This is all tied up in verse 19 of Hebrews 6. That's why I always tell people, you can't know the New Testament until you know the Old Testament. If you read the New Testament, apart from the Old Testament, you're going to go right through this, enters into the veil, without understanding the access to God that Jesus, as the great high priest, has just opened up. The kind of access that brings not just the high priest close to God, but everyone who believes in Christ and comes with him as well, that we had studied in chapter 4. This chapter 4 section, verse 14 through 16, is oft quoted, but oft quoted without due emphasis of the Old Covenant to give it understanding. Verse 14, seeing then, of chapter 4, seeing then that we have doesn't say we might have, seeing then that we have 
a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Well, what are we confessing? We're confessing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and now from verse 6, who has entered behind the veil, giving access to those who would formerly be killed by getting this close to God for relationship. Do you know that God has been progressively bringing men nearer and nearer throughout history? When God made Adam, God and Adam were near unto one another. Even to the walking together in the Garden of Eden. Well, why wasn't he killed then? Well, he wasn't killed then because he hadn't fallen yet. The relationship that Adam had and Eve had in the Garden of Eden with God was broken by sin. And a wall of separation came between God and man, and that wall was sin. And as Paul tells us in Romans, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And in the cursing of the serpent by God, a ray of hope sprang to light. To the serpent, it has told him of a special role of women. And then one woman in particular. To the serpent, God said, I'm going to put enmity, a spirit of enemy between you, your seed, and the woman's seed. And you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. This same Jesus is the full-blown form of what we learned about in Genesis 3.15 that was the seed of the woman. This woman, this seed, this Jesus, bringing about access back to God in defeating sin, paying a price going behind the veil with his own blood. Therefore, we know we have a great high priest. We can hold fast to that confession, 4 and 15 of Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, because he was a man as well as God. He was tempted like we are, and we confess that truth. Then we can say this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And when we need a mercy, what are we? Are we innocent or guilty? If you need mercy, what are you? Innocent or guilty? You're guilty. You don't need mercy unless you're guilty. If you're innocent, you just say, I'm innocent. But if you're guilty, which every man is, you have to say, have mercy on me. So we can find mercy, we can obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we confess. Because of his access, he has entered the very presence of God behind the veil. The access of Jesus Christ to God, to the mercy seat, is my confidence. My confidence and your confidence as Christians cannot be immature in dead works, in earning your way, in thinking that somehow you have been the good one. You're the one that finally figured it out, and all the other people didn't figure it out, but you're smart enough to believe so you can enter the presence. It doesn't say anything like that. It says to find or to obtain mercy. You are guilty. You shouldn't be here. You should die here. Because you're a sinner. And now you can boldly come where, let's put it this way, no man has gone before. Can I do that in church? But Jesus Christ. And find the glorious God who gives grace and mercy. 
That is our confidence. That is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. If there's any other confidence in any other one to bring you into the presence of God, you have false confidence. And now this morning, I want to move to the second point of reliance, our anchor, reliance on the high priestly offerings of Jesus. First, we rely on the high priestly order of Jesus. Now, on the high priestly offerings of Jesus. Now, verse 20. This one who enters the presence behind the veil, verse 20, where the forerunner, listen, has entered for us. And in case you wonder who that is, even Jesus a clear identification that Jesus Christ is the forerunner. Now, what's a forerunner? That's somebody who goes before everyone else. To enter that presence, this forerunner, this high priest, had to go before us. Before any other believer could go, this high priest had to go, and his access opened the way. As we read last week, these final words from Matthew of the crucifixion of Jesus and the happenings there. In Matthew 27, verse 50, we read again, Jesus now near the very end of his earthly human existence, hanging on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now here's where I want you to zero in. Verse 51 of Matthew 27, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The veil of separation that kept sinful man away from the glory of God lest they die, the place where the high priest would go but once a year to make atonement with the blood of bulls and goats, now has been torn in two, symbolically, dramatically. God articulated that something happened in Israel. You're hanging your Savior on the cross. And your Savior's blood has just accomplished this mighty thing, this four-inch thick, mighty shield is torn asunder. And where God now sits is exposed. Now you can come without the priests of the line of Aaron. And you can come through this one Jesus. He's entered as a forerunner. Did you catch these words? For us. See, a priest ministers on behalf of the people. A priest brings people to God. A prophet goes out to God, out to God's people to bring them because they won't come. Prophets are generally sent because people won't follow. Priests are to lead God's willing people into the presence of God and then to minister for them. There's kind of an arrogance that has come into evangelicalism over, I would say, the last 100 years. And that arrogance kind of seems to creep in in an overconfidence, an immature confidence that because you're saved, you can do anything. You've believed on Jesus. At some point, perhaps, you made, made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And that means you don't have to worry about living you don't have to worry about acting. You don't have to worry about following. You don't have to worry about anything. Just go ahead and live now because all your bases are covered. Get out of jail free. And then there's the other side that says, hey, I have boldness to enter the throne of grace. So since God said I can call him Abba Father, I can no longer respect. I can no longer, I don't know, there's no longer any need to fear God. There's no longer any need to, to tremble before his presence. All I need to do is run in there like any child would. I heard a preacher one time said that. If you're a child of God, call him Abba Father. You can just run into the presence all by yourself and jump on God's lap because he's your daddy. What I'm reading here is a little different. That the forerunner hadn't gone first, 
You can't go in. And if the great high priest isn't with you, you have no right to go in. You have no boldness. The reason you can go in boldly is because Jesus is ahead of you. Plowing the way. Paying the price. So the first person God sees isn't you. It's Jesus. The sacrifice and the high priest. So the offerings of Jesus are what brought the veil and tore it asunder. Let me add to your study just a little bit by way of commercial. We're not there yet, but let me say by way of commercial, everything that we're starting right now over the next three chapters is going to be expanded. So if you say right now, somebody comes up to you and says, well, tell me a few things about Jesus, the great high priest. And you go, ah, well, 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 anchor for the soul. Yeah, that was last Sunday. Anchor for the soul. That's what he is. And he goes behind the veil. Yeah, that's it. He goes behind the veil. Okay, that's good. I got two. I got two. Well, by the time we're finished, you're going to be able to write a small book. Matter of fact, quite a bit of the book is written just about that. Just so that we would understand who Jesus is as our great high priest and stand firmly anchored to that truth. The real truth of the Bible. And so if you'll turn to Hebrews 9, I give you a brief preview. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ came as, a high, as high priest of the good things to come, of the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Pay attention here. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood and bulls of goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, the writer then asks, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, listen, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. In chapter 6, we read that that was one of the first things he wasn't going to teach them about again, and that was repentance from dead works. One of the basic things that every Christian has to know to be in the elementary level of your maturity is that you've repented from dead works. And repenting from dead works is saying, I no longer think that I can work my way into heaven. I no longer think I can work my way and what I do makes me acceptable to God. But I have come to know that it is the work of Jesus Christ and his ministry as high priest right here that gives me access to God, that gives me salvation. I've repented of those dead works and I accept his finished work. See the difference? He has offered himself, and because of his offering, he has access to God, and he is then in his office, because of his offering, he is in a place of power that we can trust in. You know, you know the real estate market's been doing some stuff, hasn't it? Boy, it's been going, whoo, even here in Lewistown, boy, you got a house, you want to sell it? It's a great time. But you want to buy one, not so good. And there's three rules I learned about, about the pricing in real estate. And what influences the price of any given home are these three things that is actually one thing. And they are location, you got it, location, location. Where it is located makes it more valuable or less valuable. If you have your house, may it be a nice house that sits right by the railroad tracks where the train rumbles by three, four, five times a day or at three in the morning, you've just lost some money because of location, location, location. Well, Jesus Christ has a location of ministry. 
His offering, even when he offered it, was in the most holy place. But I don't know if you caught that in chapter 9, verse 11. He said that he went to the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He didn't make it at the temple. He made sacrifice of himself in another location. The location that has him at the right hand of God. In Colossians, Paul repeats this important location where the offerings of Jesus were made and then the finished work of Jesus was accepted where Jesus entered for us. In Colossians 3, verse 1, we read, If then you were raised with Christ, Paul says to every believer, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Well, where is Christ? He answers it this way, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. May I just say this? That's easier said than done. Am I right? The problem is, I live on earth, and so do you. And this earth speaks to us, doesn't it? This earth calls out. Our life does as well. You know, there's things that need to be done. Up oh, here the sun's come up in the morning. Means the morning chores are there waiting for you when you get up in the morning. And then you've got the jobs to do. You've got the, the list of things. And then you've got interpersonal relationships. And you've got jobs. And you've got things. And you've got church. And you've got school. And you've got going shopping. And you've got going on vacation. You've got coming back. Make sure you come back. And all of those things are very important. But they keep our mind on things on the earth. And even sometimes we start thinking about our salvation. Are you saved? If you're thinking low thoughts down here on earth, you're going to start calculating on the basis of how you're doing here. Yeah, yes, well, you know, you know, I'm not praying like Daniel three times a day, but I'm getting some in. Read my Bible, going to church, you know. Start counting. You're back to dead works. You're thinking low thoughts. Or even if you just say, well, I believed in Jesus and you got nothing else. You know, if all you can say about your salvation is I believe Jesus Christ or I've just believed, I'm a little worried about you. One, you're immature and you should know more than that by now. Or two, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know Jesus. Christianity is the study of Jesus Christians can't be Christians unless we know who he is and what he did or we can't follow. If someone asks you, how do you know you're saved? Can you say, I follow the high priest into the presence of God? Is that where you think? You don't. I know it. I can see it. You don't think of that first because we have been woefully ill-taught about the ministry, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, such that it's not even on our mind. We should be saying, location, location, location. I know where Jesus is ministering. And it's not here. And he's entered the presence for me behind the veil, paid a price, and now I can come boldly with him. He is at the right hand of God. That means God accepted his sacrifice. So set your mind on things above. Not on your sacrifice, his. May your thoughts be anchored in heaven. Isn't that a picture? What do you usually do with an anchor? You throw that heavy thing over, it sinks. Well, now what we have to do is give that thing a sling. And we got to throw that anchor up and anchor it in heaven. We got to loose, if you will mind me quoting Ronald Reagan, the surly bonds of earth and get our anchor in heaven. Where Jesus is at the right hand of God. If you haven't believed that yet, Paul will tell you again in Romans 8. And he's dealing with in Romans 8, uh, am I condemned or not condemned? Am I of faith like Abraham is of faith and rendered righteous? Or am I out? 
Well, he asked this question in Romans 8.34. Paul says, who is he who condemns? So who can bring a condemnation against you? Who is he who condemns? Listen, this is an anchor for the soul. It is Christ who died. That is, that's such a powerful statement. It's Christ who died. So you don't have to. So that you won't. So that you can live. It is Christ who died and furthermore, listen, is also risen. So not only did he die, he rose from the dead, defeating death. And who is where? Location, location, location. At the, even at the right hand of God. And what is he doing when he's there? Well, everybody knows what you do in heaven. You sit on clouds and you play harps. So you better get busy learning. Wrong. He's at the right hand of the power of God, ruling, if you will, reigning with God from the right hand position of blessing and acceptance, and he who makes intercession for us. The priest is ministering on our behalf to God for us. Are you confident in your high priest that he's doing a good ministry for you? Then your anchor holds. And if you're not, and you're depending upon you or anyone else, you're out of a condition of steadfastness and assurance. Let me give you a short list of reasons you should have confidence. Confidence in these sure, if you will, and steadfast truths about Jesus and where he is. I'll give you them in rapid fire form, I pray. First is Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, if you want to be assured of your salvation not being of you, it's in Ephesians chapter 1. Just read it and believe it. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, now trust this, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings, where? In heavenly places. Get your mind off the earth, get it in heaven. Like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. If you skip down now to the prayer of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians, I'll skip kind of into the middle of it, where Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers in verse 18 and following. He says, and he asks God that the eyes of their understanding, of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, listen, what is the hope of his calling. Remember, we're supposed to have a, a hope as an anchor for the soul. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now here on verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So in the way the Greek works this out, he says, what is the, the power that works usward? Usward, toward us. God's power is intimately focused upon us. His power is focused on us. You wonder, well, how much power is that? Well, now he tells us. This power, this mighty power of God, which he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and what? And seated him at the right hand in where? Location, 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 heavenly places. See, the death of Christ is important. But the resurrection of Christ is just as important. And built on that is the ascension of Christ into heavenly places where he sits, finished work, interceding for you, where he is by God. As Hebrews will Continue to remind us, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. As Hebrews 8, 1 says, now this, now this is the main point of the things we've been saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. 
a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Is your anchor in heaven where Christ is? Where he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. Where he ministers for us in the presence of God. Where we trust that he is there in the tabernacle. In the place that God had made for his own worship. What can man make for God? David wanted to build God a house. And God speaks to David in an admonishment fashion. He said, have I ever asked from you a house? Have I ever needed a place? And would I ask you for it? What would you do? What can you do? And it was good of David's heart. He wanted to build a house that was grander than his own because he realized, I've just built myself a kingly palace and there my God is dwelling in a tent. A very grand tent, you must uh, read your Bible and find out. But nonetheless, that's where God decided to sojourn with his people. And Jesus now sojourns in heaven, in a temple not made with hands. These are glorious things. Our confidence must be in that, where Jesus is. How can he provide such an amazing thing? No man can make God an appropriate temple, just like no man can swear. He looks for someone higher to swear by. God says, seeing there's no one else higher to swear by, he swore by himself. And seeing there is no man who could possibly build the appropriate temple for God's own worship, he built it himself, of which the things on earth are a copy. I'll get there. Not today. Number three. I pray now your plane is flying high in the heavens and your anchor is becoming further, further attached. But I want to get to the third immovable reliance. Our anchor must rely on the high priestly office of Jesus, his office. We finish verse 20. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, listen, according to the order of Melchizedek, you won't find another book of the Bible where Melchizedek is spoken of so many times than Hebrews. Nine times. He is mentioned. He's become high priest forever. We need to rely on the high priestly office of Jesus. He is not like men who die. His priestly office is held by him and there are no successors. Aaron ministered. And his sons after him ministered. And when one of those died, another one had to ascend to the high priestly office. But we rely on his forever priestly office. The office of high priest is filled forever. Never will there be a vacancy in the high priestly office. Because Jesus has filled it eternally. Hebrews 5, we have read this before, but I remind you, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, it was God who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as is so often repeated in Hebrews, he said it here. He also says in another place, listen, you are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Forever. The message of the gospel is a message of life. The reality of human existence 
is an assurance of death, after which comes the judgment, which is why there is so much terror associated with it. A man who is bound in dead works was a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, the premier teacher in Israel. He was a man who should have had a mature understanding about how one is saved, but he was ignorant and immature. And he came to Jesus Christ. He honored Jesus even. And Jesus right away just says to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born again when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven. No one has ascended to heaven. Jesus says no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The people were dying because of sin. Moses was commanded to make a serpent, serpent emblem and put it on a pole. And whoever would look at it and believe in faith didn't die. It was symbolic of Jesus who would come. Verse 15, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Too often John 3.16 is quoted out of context. Then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He who will be lifted up he who will be seen on his cross. He who will take his blood into the presence of God and pay the price. He who, when he is looked upon and believed in, will impart everlasting life to the dying. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Listen, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son, and part of the name of Jesus is Great High Priest. And this is the condemnation, condemnation that the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I stop there. His forever priestly office is forever a life giving ministry. And then lastly, I only touch upon this briefly for our next three chapters. We'll open it wide. Back in Hebrews 6, the end of verse 20, he is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Our study of Melchizedek truly begins next week. This Jesus appointed by God as Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, 
who is faithful to him who appointed him, appointed into his office by God, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. In verse 5, we'd also read, and will again, verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, saying, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Well, I appeal to you that anchor for the soul passage may not be quoted without a full understanding of Hebrews chapter 7, of Hebrews chapter 8, of Hebrews chapter 9, and I think we could add 10 in there. Then you will have your soul anchored knowingly and maturely in your great high priest. This gift God gives to us forever. Let's pray. Father, we indeed adore you. We praise your name for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Yes, as our sacrifice, and yes, as our great high priest. Lord Jesus, we are in awe, we are humbled, we are broken by our fallenness. And in our fallen state, while we were yet sinners, you came and died for us. For all who would believe that you died for us. For all who believe that you are Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and our great high priest. Blessed be thy name in all the earth. Take us now, Lord, from immaturity in the priestly work of Jesus Christ and let us grow up. May our souls become so firmly ensconced and anchored in your heavenly temple that we beg for the day when we will see both our high priest and the temple and the glory of God who sits there. We pray it in Jesus' name. Join me in saying, Amen.